0: Well, as some of you may know, uh, we uh, we being the pastoral staff uh, just returned yesterday uh, from the Shepherds Conference, which is an annual gathering of pastors and church leaders out at Grace Community Church in Los Angeles, and it's something that we've been trying to, to go to uh, really for the last 24 years or so, uh, ever since the, we got shot out of there. Uh, to uh, from youth ministry into senior pastor ministry here in in Texas, and so uh, it's a, it's just a wonderful time uh, that we look forward to every year to uh, spend time together as uh, pastors uh, here at our church, um, just being refreshed, being refocused um, by the fellowship uh, with pastors um, not only around the country but around the world. And uh, striking up old, uh, building new relationships, striking up old friendships, uh, catching up with folks and uh, people that we've known over the years, um, hearing preaching, sitting under the preaching of God's word. It's often, uh, not often that a pastor gets preached to, um, because we usually are doing doing the preaching ourselves, right? So it's good just to sit and be, be preached to, and to sit under good preaching, and uh, I was just uh, really uh, reminded Uh, this time uh, of God's faithfulness um, in my life, uh, in our family's life, and uh, I just think the longer uh, you live as a Christian, the longer you serve the Lord in ministry, uh, you look around and it seems like there's fewer and fewer guys that are being faithful, and it's sad, and so I was just thanking the Lord for his faithfulness in my life, um, to keep me from um, failing morally or drifting doctrinally, because again, that is the law of spiritual entropy, right? That we all are are moving typically away from where the uh, the Lord would have us, and so it's it's always a, a blessing when the Lord, by His grace, keeps you on track. You can't keep you can't take credit for that. Um, it's by the grace of God, and so. I was very, very grateful for that. and so again, you're getting uh, it's just too much to take in in three days uh, it's it's in some sense exhausting, but uh, the whole time I was there, I was thinking about this moment right now when I would get to come back here and get behind this pulpit and preach a message uh, to encourage you and to challenge you and uh, to fulfill the ministry that God has called me to and so as I was just thinking and, and, and taking it all in, and um, many different passages came to my mind that I wanted to share with you this morning, and as I was praying and thinking through what would be best for us, not just you, but also me, having just been freshly reminded of my duty, my responsibility um, as a pastor, the passage that God brought to, back to my the forefront of my mind was was Colossians chapter 1, verse 25. And I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me there. Colossians chapter 1, 25. This was the verse that the Lord gave me 25 years ago or so when I was leaving California, knowing that God had called me here to be a senior pastor in Texas. And I asked him for a verse that would just... um, summarize my heart, my passion as a pastor that I could share with my new congregation. And so this was the first passage I ever preached on the first Sunday as the senior pastor here at the church. I came uh, to Texas to pastor, Colossians one twenty-five. It's a familiar verse, I'm sure, to most of you. Paul said this, of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. Father, thank you for the unearned, undeserved privilege that you've given me to be a minister of your word. Thank you for raising up the Apostle Paul thousands of years ago to be an example, a model for me and really every pastor of what we're to be and what we're to do. And so I pray as we consider this text this morning as a church, Lord, that this would not fall on ears that think this doesn't apply to them, but that we would all appreciate this morning the special role that a pastor plays in the life of a church and the life of uh, a body of believers, and that we would all be faithful to apply the things that we learned this morning for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, the following sentiment by Samuel Chadwick, who was an old Methodist minister from England, expresses my passion as a pastor better than anything I've ever read. He wrote this, "'I've loved my job with a passionate and consuming love. I would rather preach than do anything else I know in this world. I've never missed a chance to preach. I would rather preach than eat my dinner or have a holiday or anything else the world can offer. I would rather pay to preach than be paid not to preach. It has its price, an agony of sweat and tears, and no calling has such joys and heartbreaks, But it is a calling an archangel might covet. And I thank God that of his grace, he called me into this ministry. I wish I had been a better minister, but there's nothing in God's world or worlds that I would rather be. I'm convinced that the highest calling in the world is the call to pastoral ministry. There's no greater Privilege, and at the same time, there's no greater responsibility or, or responsibility that a man could have than to serve the Lord as a pastor. Nothing is all at once so relentlessly demanding and richly rewarding than the work of pastoral ministry. But before a a man ventures upon such a solemn life work, it is imperative that they have a clear understanding of what a pastor is to be and what a pastor is to do. No one understood that better than the Apostle Paul. And I think he provided the most instruction and served as the best example of what a pastor is to be and do. And his teaching and his example have played a major role in shaping my understanding of pastoral ministry. And if I had to pick one verse in which he succinctly expressed his passion as a pastor, it would be this verse, Colossians one twenty-five. And while, when Paul wrote this verse, he was in prison. Enduring persecution for the cause of Christ. In fact, look at the verse that comes before our text this morning, verse 24. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So by doing time in prison, Paul was doing his part to build up the body of Christ, including the body of Christ here in Colossae. And specifically, he stated that he was doing his part in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, obviously, Paul was not saying that Christ's sufferings on the cross were incomplete or inadequate to atone for sin. He had just reminded the Colossians that Christ's death was completely sufficient to redeem them from sin and reconcile them to God. And Verses 13 and 14 of this first chapter, he says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What Paul was saying was that even though Christ had been killed, his enemies were still so hostile and so hateful towards him that they still hadn't gotten their fill of inflicting pain and and injury upon him. And so they turned that hostility and that hatred toward those who had committed their lives to follow him and to those who boldly proclaimed him. And Jesus told his followers that this would happen, that if they hated me, they're also going to hate you. But he also told them to rejoice when it did happen, when you are persecuted, rejoice because you're in good company and so Paul was rejoicing here because he got to share in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings as he'd called that in Philippians chapter 3:10 he literally Paul literally bore on his body the brand marks of Christ Galatians 6:17 he had scars from all the times he had been beaten and been stoned and left for dead these were all brand marks of Christ, which, by the way, served to lead others to Christ. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, he says this, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. So he knew that by enduring suffering and persecution, he was building up the church of Christ. He was building up the body of Christ. And that's what made him such a great pastor. He said in verse 25, of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. And I think in this verse, Paul gave one of the simplest and clearest explanations of pastoral ministry found anywhere in the entire Bible. And I want you to see this morning with me four dynamics involved in pastoral ministry. Four dynamics involved in pastoral ministry. We're going to see, first of all, the sovereignty of a pastor. Secondly, the responsibility of a pastor. Thirdly, the humility of a pastor. And then finally, the priority of a pastor. And I think these four dynamics really just summarize what a pastor is to be and what a pastor is to be is to do. This is what God expects of me. This is what I expect of me. And this is what you should expect of me or any man who serves as a pastor here at Lakeside Bible Church. So let's look first of all at the sovereignty of a pastor. The sovereignty of a pastor. That first phrase there, he says, of this church I was made a minister. I was made a minister. Paul often expressed his conviction that he'd been sovereignly chosen by God to be a minister. Look at verse 23. The very end of verse 23, he says, of which I, Paul, talking about the gospel, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Notice Verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Elsewhere, he said this in Acts, 2 20, or Acts 20, 28, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Talking to the elders of the church in Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7, he says, I was made a minister of the gospel, According to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me, according to the working of his power, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, he said, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, and yet I was shown mercy, being the foremost of all sinners. Paul never, ever got over the fact that God had not only graciously and mercifully converted him, but also had sovereignly called him into the ministry, even though he had been the most vehement and violent persecutor of the church. Serving Christ and his church was not anything Paul would have chosen to do on his own. I mean, it wasn't even on his radar. He was an enemy of the church. He was an enemy of Christ. He was on a a one-man crusade to snuff out the church when God saved him and set him apart to serve the church. And so Paul realized that being a pastor wasn't his choice. It was obviously God's choice. And I think it's true of every pastor. A pastor doesn't choose his profession like a a banker or a lawyer or a farmer. His vocation is chosen for him by God. And that position of a pastor cannot be Purchased, it cannot be inherited, it cannot be attained by theological education or achieved by some natural giftedness. It is a gift that is sovereignly granted to a man by God. Oswald Sanders in his classic book, Spiritual Leadership, said it this way: quote, It is the element of sovereignty that begets awe and great humility in those whom leadership is entrusted. I can appreciate his statement there because I am both awed and humbled that God sovereignly called me to be a pastor. He graciously placed me in a Christian home where I was brought up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, which resulted by his grace in a genuine commitment of my entire life to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it was in high school where I experienced the first inkling of God's call to the ministry, God burdened me with uh, the, just the hopelessness of my peers, the, my, my, my fellow teenagers, and uh, God gave me what Spurgeon described in his book, um, Lectures to My Students, as an irresistible, overwhelming, craving, and raging thirst for telling to others what God had done to my soul. Swordin would tell young men who went to his pastor's college, men, if you don't have this, <clears throat> this irresistible, overwhelming craving and raging first thirst for telling others what God has done to your soul, then you're not called to the ministry. And so this desire grew in its intensity until it became, a, in the words of Jeremiah the prophet, a burning fire shut up in my bones. And the fire became so all-absorbing, all-consuming that I didn't have a desire to do anything else with my life. And I knew I wouldn't be content doing anything in life but the work of the ministry. So God confirmed that desire by providentially directing me towards the ministry and allowing me to go to Bible college and provided me with excellent theological training as well as great mentoring uh, from godly men and gave me abundant ministry opportunities to use and hone the the spiritual gifts that God had given me to to uh, to effectively serve him and then after Completing a formal ordination process, a group of godly men laid their hands on me and prayed over me as a way to publicly recognize and affirm that God had called me and equipped me for full time pastoral ministry. And then, in His sweet providence, God directed me to a group of people to shepherd here in Texas. And as some of you know, things got off to a rocky start. And while the majority of people in the church were blessed by the ministry that God had prepared me to provide, there was a handful of folks who wanted to have their ears tickled and so they stirred up strife and tried everything they could do to get me fired. But it was in the midst of those difficult days as a, as a brand new senior pastor, young and dumb, I guess is more like it. It was God's sovereignty in choosing me to be a pastor that gave me a sense of great confidence in the midst of all the chaos and all the confusion that was going on in the church. Erwin Lutzer, who used to pastor Moody Church in Chicago, said this, quote, I don't see how anyone could survive in the ministry if he felt it was just his own choice. Some ministers scarcely have two good days back to back, but they're sustained by the knowledge that God has placed them where they are. Ministers without such a conviction often lack courage and carry their resignation letter in their coat pocket. At the slightest hint of difficulty, they're gone. Charles Bridges, in a classic book he wrote called The Christian Ministry, said this, the confidence that a pastor is acting in obedience to the call of God, that he is in his work and in his way, nerves him in the midst of all difficulty and under a sense of his responsible obligations with almighty strength. I've always found encouragement in the call, the sovereign call of Jeremiah the prophet. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4, this is how Jeremiah described his call by God. He said, now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak because I'm a youth. In other words, he was protesting. Well, why'd you choose me? I, I don't, I don't, I'm not a good speaker. I'm just a young person here. I'm just a, I'm just a young whippersnapper. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am a youth, because everywhere I send you, you shall go, and all that I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. And at the end of that chapter, chapter one, God went on to say, now behold, I have made you today as a fortified city and as a pillar of iron and as walls of bronze against the whole land to the kings of Judah, to its princes, to its priests, and to the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they will not overcome you, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. And God knew that Jeremiah's ministry would not be welcomed by the people of Israel. And they would give him some pushback. And so he said, don't worry. I'll be there the entire time to deliver you. So it's always a good reminder for me that as a pastor, I'm not just doing a job. This is... um, I, I am a, I am fulfilling a divine calling. I, I am a man under obligation, not to you but to God. And so Paul understood that, he understood the sovereignty, of, a pastor. But secondly, he also understood the responsibility of a pastor. The responsibility of a pastor. Notice he says, of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God. According to the stewardship from God. Paul likened his role as a pastor, or as he calls himself there, a minister to the role of a steward. Colossians, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians 4.1, let a man regard us in this manner. Paul says, hey, regard me as a servant of Christ, a steward of the mystery of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 16 he said for if I preach the gospel I have nothing to boast of for I'm under compulsion for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel for if I do this voluntarily I have a reward but if against my will I have a stewardship entrusted to me And I'm sure you're familiar with this position of a steward a steward was a slave that was entrusted with the responsibility to oversee a a master's entire estate. And so the master would delegate to him the authority to manage all the affairs of his household. And so he was under obligation to fulfill his responsibility, and he would be rewarded or punished accordingly. And in 1 Timothy 3, verse 15, Paul likened the church to God's household. And that God has entrusted ministers with the responsibility to oversee it and to to take care of it. And with that enormous responsibility comes enormous accountability. Hebrews 13, 17 says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they keep watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul mentioned this accountability in um, verse 10, according to the grace of God, which was given to me. Like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it, but each man is to be careful how he builds on it, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. And if any man's work which he is built on remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as though through fire. So Paul was challenging the Corinthians to make sure they were being faithful builders. In the very next chapter, 1 Corinthians 4, 2, he says, in this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one... Be found trustworthy. In other words, God has not called pastors to be successful. He's called pastors to be faithful. And the reality that I will stand before God someday and be held accountable for how faithfully I fulfilled my responsibility as your pastor motivates me to be a good steward. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, as each one has received a special gift employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. This is including you, by the way, now. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so as by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. and i think peter reminds us there that what should ultimately motivate a steward is not the reward he might get but giving honor and glory to his master he's he's more concerned about what his his master will get he wants his master to get all the honor and all the glory which brings us to the next dynamic and that is the humility of a pastor the humility of a pastor. In other words, it's not about him. Notice again, verse 25, of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit. Paul realized that God had made him a minister for his own benefit, but to benefit the people that were entrusted to his care. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you. And then, of course, Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, and God gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. In other words, I'm just part of the pit crew, and you guys are out driving around all week, you know, racing around the track of life. And uh, as you do that, your you know your t- your tires start to get spiritually bald, if you will. You need some new treads. Uh, your windshield gets all messed up with bugs and dirt and gunk, and you need to come in and get a clean windshield and. And you kind of get low on fuel, and so what do you do? You, you pull into to church every Sunday. <laughs> and, and the pastoral team, right, the, the pastors and the elders, and, 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 and we, we, jump up, we jump over the wall, and we're like, <laughs> we're pulling tires off, we're putting tires back on, we're, we're cleaning the windshield, we're putting gas in there, right? And, and we're, we're, we're all trying to do that within an hour and a half on Sunday morning. It's a little longer pit stop, right, than a few seconds. But, and then we shoot you back out on the track. For another week of racing around the track. And so the driver doesn't exist for the pit crew, but the pit crew exists for the driver. And they're there to help the driver win the race. And in the same way, we, you don't exist for us. Like, hey, thanks for coming. So I got a job to do this morning, you know? It's like, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. No, listen, I'm here for you. I'm here to help you win the Christian race. I'm here to help you be successful in your walk with Christ, to be faithful in your walk with Christ. And what that means is I didn't go to seminary and get ordained for my benefit so that you could walk into my office and be impressed with all these diplomas along the wall. Or so that you could refer to me as Dr. Ramey. It was all for the benefit of those God called me to shepherd. God doesn't bring a pastor to a a group of people to fulfill some need in his life. God sends a pastor to to fulfill a need in their life. To fill up what is lacking in their faith so that they might be mature and complete lacking nothing. I love how Paul said this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. He was he was longing for the Thessalonians. He missed them. He had been cut uh, uh premature his time with them had been cut premature, prematurely short. He was he was run out of town after just a couple weeks. And he longed to go back and and spend time with them and and I just love his tenderness and his others focused when he wrote to them. And this is 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 7. He says, For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. That, That was his passion. He just wanted to help people grow and mature in their walk with Christ. In other words, I'm here to serve you. The word minister there of this church, I was made a minister. This is the word diakonos, remember that word? It's a, I told you it was a kind of a generic word that was used just as any servant. And Paul applied it to himself that he was a, he says, I was made a servant. And Paul often referred to himself as a bondservant or even a bond slave of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, verse 5 He says, what then is Apollos? What what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. In the second Corinthians chapter three, verse six, he says this, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant? Chapter four, verse five, for we do not preach ourselves but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bond slaves for Jesus' sake. I had a pastor friend that I went out to lunch one time with and I noticed he had tattoos on the back of his wrists. And on this hand it said Christos, and on this wrist it said doulos, And I said, hey, what's up with that? Christ slave in the Greek, right? Christ slave, Christus doulos. He said, yeah. He said, every every time I'm, I'm, I'm typing on my computer a message or I'm in the pulpit preaching a message, I want to be reminded that I am Christ slave. And so I wanted it staring back at me. And I thought, what a great example. Especially in light of the fact that this is not Usually the image that comes to mind when you think of of a pastor today. Pastors are often viewed as CEOs or visionaries or celebrities even, even though the Bible describes them as slaves. The Bible never compares the position of a pastor to some high-powered person, but to a humble, lowly shepherd. And the main job of a shepherd is to, to serve the flock. Warren Weersby wrote a helpful little book that I read years ago called Ten Powerful Principles for Christian Service. And this is how he describes the role of a pastor. He said, quote, to put it plainly, shepherds serve their sheep. Shepherds know their sheep and can call them by name. They lead their sheep to places where they can find food, water, and shelter. They protect the sheep from enemies. They apply healing oil when the sheep have been cut or bruised. They enable the sheep to be useful in growing wool, providing milk, and reproducing after their kind. When any of the sheep go astray, the shepherd goes after them and seeks to bring them back. And then he said this it doesn't take much imagination to apply this to the local church and the ministry of the pastor and elders. They lead the sheep into the word of God for spiritual nourishment and refreshment. They keep alert lest Satan's wolves invade the flock. They equip the sheep for being useful in the kingdom of God. When the sheep stray, the shepherds lovingly go after them. And when the sheep hurt, the shepherds apply the medicine of God's word to promote healing. And then he closed with this. He said, shepherding is a personal ministry, a sacrificial ministry, and a demanding ministry maintaining the heart of a servant is the basis for all that the pastor does it was jesus christ the great shepherd who told his under shepherds the disciples not to lead like the rulers of the world who lorded over them and exercised authority over them and instead he said they needed to be the servant or the slave of all matthew 10:45 for the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So what a humbling reminder for me that I'm not here to be served, but to spend my life serving this flock as your humble shepherd. And then finally, the priority of a pastor The priority of a pastor, he says, of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That word or phrase fully carry out means to do fully or to carry something to completion. And you, you, you can't help but, but see Paul's single-minded devotion here to completely fulfill the ministry that God had called him to, which consisted primarily of preaching and teaching the word of God to the people whom he'd been sent to minister. In Acts chapter 20 verse 20, he said this to the church, uh, to the elders there in the church in Ephesus, just reminding them of his ministry while he was there for those three years. He said this, quote, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. I like that. Paul recognized that there was really, that the ministry of the word and the life of a pastor is really twofold. It's not just standing behind a pulpit, but it's also sometimes sitting Across a a desk, perhaps for uh, sitting on a couch, you know, in a coffee shop. Uh, There's 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 public ministry of the word, but there's also house to house ministry. There's one on one counseling. There's discipling. I view counseling as just private preaching, and I don't get to prepare a manuscript for that. I got to just be ready for whatever you bring. And uh, hopefully know the word well enough to get you back to the word and say, okay, hey, let, let me preach a little mini sermon here. This is more like a shotgun this morning, shotgun approach on Sunday mornings, whereas when you get into a counseling session, you can be more specific. It's more like a rifle, and you can be more direct in helping people understand a particular verse and how it applies to their specific situation. Paul continued in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, he said, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself in order that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And then he said this, therefore, I testify to you to this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God or the whole counsel of God. In other words, Paul's priority passion was to preach everything in God's word without leaving anything out or compromising any part of it. And as you are aware, he passed this this passion on to his young disciple Timothy. Turn over to 2 Timothy quickly. I'd like you to see this with your own eyes. It's a familiar passage, but it's good for us to be reminded of. I was reminded of it this these last three days. Second Timothy chapter three, verse 15. Well, I'll start in verse 14, perhaps. This was Paul, again exhorting his young disciple Timothy, Second Timothy chapter four, uh, three, verse thir- uh, 14. "You, however, Timothy, continue in the things you've learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you've learned them, and that from childhood you've known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom at least to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus." He's referring to his mother and grandmother who had taught him the scriptures. And then he reminds him of the nature of the scriptures in verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate equipped for every good work. In other words, Timothy, you have everything you need in this book right here. You have everything you need for every situation you find yourself. And this is one of those unfortunate chapter breaks in our New Testament here, our New Testament translation, because he goes on to say, in light of the nature of Scripture, being inspired by God and profitable for teaching, so based on the authority of Scripture and the profitability of Scripture and the sufficiency of Scripture... I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Why? For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. I think we live in that day that Paul warned Timothy about when people don't want to hear sound doctrine. They would much rather hear entertaining talks, targeting their felt needs that allow them to leave church feeling good about themselves. And so they surround themselves. That's what it means. They accumulate for themselves. They surround themselves with preachers or perhaps who could be more accurately called life coaches they're not really preachers at all. They're, they're life coaches who, who tell them what they want to hear instead of what they need to hear. And I think too many pastors are guilty of altering their approach to preaching to, to supply the growing demand for ear-tickling messages. So It's a supply and demand thing. And so sermons are being shortened up, they're being supplemented with other things, as if this wasn't enough, right, let's put on a show all around it to to make it seem more relevant to our lives. And so based on the example of the Apostle Paul back in Colossians chapter 1, and also of course here in 2 Timothy 3 and 4, a, a pastor must Be committed to the authority and the sufficiency of the scriptures and be convinced that the exposition of God's word is the primary means by which God builds his church. Bruce Milne in his helpful little systematic theology book called Know the Truth, he said it this way, quote, the supreme means... That God has instituted in the church to unveil and disseminate his truth among his people is preaching. Nothing is more calculated to bring renewal of life, vigor and faith to the church in any generation than the unleashing of God's everlasting word through the ministry of expository preachers anointed by his Holy Spirit. So the number one priority of a pastor is the preaching of God's word. And this has been the conviction of pastors throughout the generations. G. Campbell Morgan, the great British preacher, said this, quote, "The supreme work of the Christian minister is the work of preaching." He said, "This is the day in which one of our great perils is that of doing a thousand little things to the, ne- to the neglect of the one thing, which is preaching." Nothing is more needed among preachers today than that we should have the courage to shake ourselves free from the thousand and one trivialities which were asked to waste our time and strength and resolutely return to the apostolic ideal which made necessary the office of deacon. We must resolve that we will continue steadfastly in prayer and the ministry of the word. The great Puritan John Owen said the first and principal duty of a pastor is to feed the flock by diligent preaching of the word. John MacArthur said it this way, among the varied responsibilities assigned to a pastor, that of preaching stands head and shoulders above the rest in importance. The faithful preaching of the word is the most important element of pastoral ministry. I'll never forget sitting around in the boardroom at the master Seminary with my cohort during my, uh, while well, I was earning that doctorate and we were sitting around the room, and we had an opportunity to have John MacArthur come in and sit there, and we were kind of doing a Q&A, and, and uh, one of the other guys in the cohort asked him a question and, and kind of insinuated in the question that, hey, uh, we understand that we're here to learn how to be better preachers, and and uh, but man, we got a lot of other responsibilities, other duties as pastors that we've got to manage and we've got to juggle as we're learning how to, as we're studying God's word and preparing to preach God's word. And 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 it was just one of those epic moments when John MacArthur just interrupted him and almost came out of his chair and looked down the boardroom table at this guy and said, preaching is everything. And it was just a reminder of we were all, okay, yeah, okay, we got it. Let's close in prayer. Let's go home. We, we earned our doctorate. We, we learned our lesson, right? And that was for free, by the way, that, that little piece of advice from John MacArthur. That was free. J.I. Packer said it this way, we shall never perform a more important task than preaching, talking to pastors. If we are not willing to give time to sermon preparation, we are not fit to preach And have no business in the ministry at all. And so I think the greatest need in the church today is for pastors to make preaching the highest priority in their lives and their ministries. And we must believe with all our hearts that what people need more than anything else is the clear, accurate explanation an application of God's Word. And if that's true, then our primary purpose must be to help people understand the Bible and how it applies to their lives. And so we need to strive to make studying and preparing to preach the priority in our weekly schedules. And it's a weekly battle, I will confess, to put aside all the other trivialities as... G. Campbell Morgan called them, and to give my best hours to prayer and to the study of God's word. I take very seriously Paul's command to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, where he said, Timothy, be diligent, study hard, to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. The bottom line is that every pastor, anyone who handles God's word is gonna stand before God someday and be either ashamed or approved depending on how accurately we handle his word. And really at the end of the day, it's not that hard. I think the key to powerful Effective preaching is, is rather simple. It's staying in your study until you know that God will be pleased by what you've prepared to preach because it accurately represents his word. I wrote myself a note during the conference. A short little phrase that I wanted to Remember. And it goes like this, to misinterpret God's word is to misrepresent God. To misinterpret God's word is to misrepresent God. It's a high and holy calling, isn't it? It's the last thing you want to do is to misrepresent God. Let me close this morning, with what I consider to be an unforgettable plan for us as a church to live out the principles here in Colossians one twenty-five, and this was um, suggested by an unknown church member for his pastor. Fling him into his office, tear the office sign from the door, and nail on the sign, study. Take him off the mailing list, lock him up with his books and his computer and his Bible, slam him down on his knees before texts and broken hearts and the flock of lies of a superficial flock and a holy God. Force him to be the one man in our community who knows about God. Throw him into the ring to box with God until he learns how short his arms are. Engage him to wrestle with God all the night through and let him come out only when he's bruised and beaten into being a blessing. Shut his mouth forever, spouting remarks, and stop his tongue forever, tripping lightly over every non-essential. Require him to have something to say before he dares break the silence. Bend his knees in the lonesome valley, burn his eyes with weary study, wreck his emotional poise with worry for God, and make him exchange his pious stance for a humble walk with God and man. Make him spend and be spent for the glory of God. Rip out his telephone, burn up his ecclesiastical success sheets, put water in his gas tank, give him a Bible, and tie him to the pulpit and make him preach the word of the living God. Test him. Quiz him, examine him, humiliate him for his ignorance of things divine. Shame him for his good comprehension of finances and batting averages and political infighting. Laugh at his frustrated effort to play psychiatrist. Form a choir and raise a chant and haunt him with it night and day singing, Sir, we would see Jesus. When at long last he dares ascend the pulpit, ask him, if he has a word from God, and if he does not, then dismiss him. Tell him you can read the morning paper and digest the television commentaries and th- think through the day's superficial problems and manage the community's weary drives and bless the sordid baked potatoes and green beans better than he can. Command him not to come back until he's read and reread, written and rewritten, until he can stand up worn and forlorn and say, Thus saith the Lord. This guy won't quit. (laughs) Break him, he says, across the board of his ill-gotten popularity. Smack him hard with his own prestige. Corner him with questions about God. Cover him with demands for celestial wisdom. And give him no escape until he's back against the wall of the word. And sit down before him and listen to the only word he has left, God's word. Let him be totally ignorant of the downstreet gossip, but give him a chapter and order him to walk around it, camp on it, sup with it, and come at last to speak it backward and forward until all it says, or all he says about it rings with the truth of eternity. And this is my favorite part. And when he's burned out by the flaming word, when he's consumed at last by the firing, fiery grace blazing through him, and when he's privileged to translate the truth of God to man, finally transferred from earth to heaven, then bear him away gently and blow a muted trumpet and lay him down softly, place a two-edged sword in his coffin and raise the tomb triumphant, for he was a brave soldier of the word And ere he died, he had become a man of God. Let's pray. Father, would you, by your grace, allow that to be our experience here at this church? as I and the other pastors that you've called to serve here strive to faithfully fulfill our calling to fully carry out the preaching of your word that we would humbly serve as slaves here that we would model servant leadership that we would be faithful stewards of this church, which you've entrusted to our care. And ultimately would be all for the glory of Christ. Because we know this is his church, not mine, not ours, not anyone in here this morning. This is Christ's church. And so I pray that we would all remember that, and that we would come here every week with that in the forefront of our minds, that it's not about us, but it's about Christ, and that you would use us to proclaim Christ, and as we do that, that you would cause us also to grow in Christ, so that he would be our greatest prize and our greatest treasure. And so, Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity today to be reminded of what, not just what you've called me to be and do, but what you've called all of us to be and do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.